Hi there, I'm Amanda Robson, a student journalist at Monash University. This Mojo News podcast is recorded on the land of the Kulin Nations, and I wish to acknowledge and pay my respects to the people and their elders, past, present, and emerging. The opinion polls are pointing to a referendum defeat tonight. The Uluru statement from the heart was about voice, it was about treaty, and it was about truth-telling. Yes is still lagging behind in the polls. You are joining me for... Constructive Conversations with Stan Grant. Australians have made their decision. More than 60% voted against the voice to Parliament unreservedly illustrating a lack of support for constitutionalising an Indigenous advisory body to Parliament. I know this outcome will be hard for some, but achieving progress is never easy and progress doesn't always move in a straight line. There are breakthroughs and heartbreaks. Stan and I decided to let our silence speak over the past couple of weeks out of respect for those who were and continue to process the referendum result. During our podcast, we have covered the importance of democracy, the role media plays in our perception of the world, and why constructive journalism is imperative in shaping the future global media landscape. Today, Stan and I will have a post-mortem constructive conversation about the referendum's result, focusing on how the language and neutrality used by the media played a key role in its demise. Hey Stan, it's great to speak with you again. Let's start by talking about Referendum Day. I know that by the time I went to vote on the day, there were so many polls floating around, whether that be online or on mainstream media, the referendum was heading towards defeat. I mean, it left so many with a feeling of defeat already, just standing and waiting. It was like the referendum was decided even before Australia could vote. How has the media impacted the vote and how has it treated the issue over the past fortnight? Yeah, you know, it's been an interesting time. We haven't spoken, so good to see you again, Amanda, and to everyone who's listening. What I did after the um, referendum was what a lot of other Aboriginal people did, which was to just have a period of silence. I think there was a great symbolic power in that. If you, if we were denied a voice, then why would we contribute a voice? So there was something, I think, quite poetic about the idea of a silence. And I've been spending the last couple of weeks not really engaging in, um, in any of the the public discourse around the referendum or reading a lot of articles or listening to people, but seeking a, a different truth, I think. And for me, it's a deeper truth that you find in poetry, especially, uh, where truth can be held in a much more profound way than you get in, in news headlines. So that's been a, not an escape, actually, because it's probably been more confronting to go into a deep silence and sit with the truth of poetry is very, very unsettling, very confronting, but it, it's necessary. And so that's what it's been like for me. I shared your view on the day that um, it wasn't going to be successful. In fact, I don't think it was ever going to be successful because 
I don't think Australia's ready. I don't think we were ready to walk into that ballot box with an understanding of what was really being asked here. This was something that had been captured by politics, diminished by politics, and reduced by the media. You know, the media failed, in my view, completely in the way that it dealt with this. We saw the worst of the anemic neutrality of the media, this idea that you give both sides, you don't. You give truth an airing and you allow people to speak with integrity and we gave platform and voice to people in, who, were, who were speaking in bad faith. Uh, racism was rampant. I experienced that. Um, there was misinformation and there was hatred. And largely because the media does not have the language and the capacity to truly engage with the depth of Aboriginal experience and suffering in Australia. They made this about politics, about the constitution, about Peter Dutton or about Anthony Albanese or about racism or about a whole lot of things. Missing the fundamental question here, are we as a nation big enough to hold the solemn truth and the sacred experience of Aboriginal people in this country. And it failed and it didn't surprise me. And in the weeks since, I've wanted to avoid the media that it is, has, after the vote, continued to produce this to something that you can understand in a political way rather than something that weighs heavily on the soul of the nation. Over the past three weeks, we've been talking about the voice to parliament as an exceptional circumstance. We, You yeah. used the word exceptionalism. It should have been in the media over the course of the campaign. Why yeah. do you think they don't use that kind of language? Because they don't understand it. Um, to use the word exceptional in the media would be interpreted as being special. It would immediately be seized upon by people who also don't understand it, politicians, to depict it as something divisive. The exceptional state of First Nations people in Australia comes from our connection and antiquity to this land, which is recognised in the law of this land by the highest court in this land. In two landmark rulings, the Mabo decision in 1992 and uh, Love versus the Commonwealth, last year, they were fundamental judgments in the law about the depth of connection to this land that First Nations people have. We have an exceptional place within the law of this land. We have an exceptional position within the constitution in that the federal government has the power to make laws for us and we have an exceptional position in the story of this country. It doesn't mean it's better. It doesn't mean that it's more special or that it's a right that someone doesn't have. It is exceptional. But don't look to the media to, under to understand the, the nuance and the depth of that word 
And politicians had no idea. And if they did have an idea, they would only seek to muddy the waters anyway. So we didn't hear from a lot of things in, uh, in the campaign that the media can never understand and that politics is not interested in engaging in. But Aboriginal people know through hard experience, a hard history of our relationship to this country. So Australia fails and the media fails and politics fail. And First Nations people, sadly, are paying the price for that. The media spoke about the lack of bipartisan support, which contributed to the result. Peter Dutton said... As a leader of the coalition who has supported the No campaign, while I disagree with your position, I respect your decision to have voted yes. At all times in this debate, uh, I've levelled my criticism at what I consider to have been a bad idea. Do you think that the lack of bipartisan support contributed to such a disparaging result? No state voted yes abundantly. Yeah. Yeah, of course it did. It was dead from the moment there was not bipartisanship. Without bipartisanship, referendums fail. That's it. That's what we see. That's what history tells us. Um, If you add other issues like race, history, um, to that mix, it becomes even more incendiary and potentially divisive, and that's what we saw. Um, So it was not going to succeed. You know, we throw this word democracy around and we throw it around without engaging with what democracy is. And there is one thing we know about democracy is that it is in retreat around the world. John Adams, the second president of the United States, said there's never been a democracy that does not commit suicide. It wastes itself. It exhausts itself. It collapses under its own weight. And we're seeing this everywhere with the way that the institutions of democracy are collapsing. People are losing faith in democracy. Elite capture in power and wealth is eroding the civic bonds that are necessary for democracy to function. And democracy struggles with the weight of history. It can't balance or hold the deep historical claims that historically oppressed people have in a system that is always about renewal, about tomorrow, and privileges the rights of individuals over the rights of groups. That inevitably leads to an erasure of a group identity and diminishing the truths of the group history, without which I am not an individual. I don't exist outside of that history. Who I am is born out of that and that experience. Don't expect democracy to deal with those things. Um, So we throw this word around democracy, and I don't think we truly understand it. We certainly don't understand how or why democracy is failing. And while it wasn't a democratic expression in the referendum in that people went to the polling booth and they voted, you can have an expression of democracy that also reveals the the failure of democracy to speak to those deeper questions. We are 3% of the population, Aboriginal people. We will never exercise democratic power in our political system. We require the rest of the nation 
to be sufficiently engaged to be able to render a just democratic verdict. I don't believe they were sufficiently engaged with enough knowledge and an empathy for Aboriginal experience that allowed a full expression of democracy. What we got was a distorted view of democracy because of the things I spoke about before, the failure of media, the reduction, the reductionist tendencies of the media and the exploitative tendencies of politics. And people were not, I don't think, and I don't want to say this in a disparaging way, to blame people and say people weren't educated enough. It's not a question of education. It's a question of preparedness and familiarity. And I don't think there was familiarity or preparedness. I don't think there was an intimacy necessary for a just democratic verdict. What there was was a distorted democratic verdict. And I think that was distorted by a whole lot of factors, many of which we've already covered. So when we throw the word democracy around, it requires a much deeper and more nuanced understanding than we ever get in the media. And yet I would argue that that's a far more constructive understanding. I would argue that what I've outlined is more constructive in understanding the result than to just have a triumphant view and say, well, that's the Australian people, that's democracy, they've spoken and that's that. Or to have the other side, which is to blame everybody and say everyone's a racist, it's not that simple. And when we talk about democracy, we need to understand that it is complex, fragile. It can appear to work and yet it can fail at the same time. When we were talking last, we talked about multiplicity. Yeah. And we talked about how nothing is black and white. You can't be one. Yeah. I mean, the no, the no campaign, after they won their referendum, they said... The Australian people have voted overwhelmingly uh, say no to this referendum. They've said no to division within our constitution along the lines of race. And we need to be one. But we cannot be one, can we? Well, I think it's, again, it's, it's, it's political speech. What do you mean by one? What do we mean by reducing a nation to one thing? That is not in any way a nation that can speak to all of us. Um, the United States talks about e pluribus unum, out of many, one. And, but the idea that there is a one, that's a totalising idea. That's an erasing idea. And I don't think that is consistent with democracy either. I think that politics has stripped the meaning from words, one, unity. I don't know what unity means. You don't all, all fall into line. What we do is that we contest, and in a good democratic society, we accept because the democracy itself can hold that contest. I think increasingly we're seeing democracy is failing to hold that contest. It's creating often irreparable divisions. When they say it was divisive, um, who made it divisive? It is certainly for me feels divisive now because I know where the country is divided to 
and the 40%, Corey for the less, 39 point something. So you need to always understand the words themselves. We talk about reconciliation and healing, two other anemic words, antiseptic words, words without any meaning, politically convenient words. I think reconciliation and healing need to be words that come with reckoning and a tolerant care, love and compassion. And we don't hear those words from politicians. So you're looking in the wrong place if you're trying to understand our country through the eyes of politicians. They are not our country. We are a multiplicity. We are a peoples, and yet we form a people with all of the difference that doesn't have to make us different. But that requires a far deeper understanding than you'll ever get from a politician who you'll ever find in most of the media. But you do find it in literature. You find it in poetry. You find it in art. And I think that's a truer expression of our country and our democracy than media and politics. Can the media move towards a better approach reporting on Indigenous affairs? How can constructive journalism shape the way that this could have been covered in a better light, in a more constructive light? Yeah, well, again, I think to use words as they're meant to be used, to not platform people of bad faith just because we need to give the other side um, to understand and to interrogate lies and misinformation, to understand when people are saying inane things for a political purpose, like colonisation has had no lasting negative impact on people, that requires more than just being running a news grab. Um, I, I think there were many ways to try to have the constructive discussion that didn't have to reduce everything or politicise everything. And I have friends who voted no. One of my friends, Warren Bundine, was a leading proponent of no. Um, I love Warren. He's my brother. If I'm in trouble, I call him, and if he's in trouble, he calls me. We're not defined by our difference, and yet I think the campaign was framed around division and difference. Warren and I can agree on, on many things and disagree on others, and we can have a discussion around that that I never saw in a way that was not conflict-based or combative or reductive. I think reduction is one of the great crimes of media today. And politicians are all too happy to reduce our lives to political slogans when the media can't balance that with complexity and interrogation and an empathy uh, rather than just a stark neutrality. And I think that lie of neutrality is doing a lot of damage to our, our democracy, frankly. Yeah. Do you think that now that the referendum has happened and we know that there is such a large proportion of our society that have voted no. 
Do you think this is going to hinder the goals outlined in the Uluru Statement? Well, obviously it has because it was a three-pronged thing, um, voice treaty truth. Well, there's no voice. So it's immediately, you know, it's a rejection of that invitation from the Uluru Statement from the heart. How far are we from the truth-telling in this country? Oh, it's just a long way. Um, And treaty? Well, at a federal level, there's no appetite for that. So the three things that the Uluru Statement called for as a means of meaningful reconciliation, not cheap reconciliation, not politically convenient reconciliation. The coalition at the end of the referendum night, they said that they plan to move forward after this referendum and do more for Indigenous communities, but we haven't heard anything since. Well, they're not in power. And, you know, we're, let, we're yet to see if they ever return to power, and they will at some point. Um, that's the way politics goes. Um, we'll see. But their understanding or approach to improving the lives of Aboriginal people are predominantly economic. And I don't disagree with that. You know, um, jobs and better housing and healthcare. Or- those things are important. Practical things are important. Um, I agree with that. But we're also people of the soul. I've closed the gap. I have all of the things that the coalition would wish an Aboriginal person could have, all of them. And yet I have a deep wound of the soul. And I think that is more profound than the house I begin to be honest with you. And... Uh, I think they overlook that because it's uh, it's part of a classically liberal, small L, liberal approach to the world where we can, and particularly an economically based approach to, you know, so homo economic, economic homo economicus as it's called, um, a neoliberal idea that the market resolves everything. And, um, and we know that's not true. So I'm not disparaging the well-meaning ambition to improve the lives of Aboriginal people. There's nothing I would want more. But it shouldn't come at the cost of the soul of our people. And I think the voice spoke to both of those things. It created an opportunity for a better practical outcome and it also was a balm for the nation's soul to, to start begin to deal with the wounds of our history. And I don't think the coalition, well, clearly they told us that's not where they're at. It's not what they're interested in. And so there's a, there's a very big difference there between the two major parties. And I would think, I would argue, between the majority of Aboriginal people as well and that side of politics. What can we take away from the referendum? Um, many things. I take away the fact that um, Australia has very comfortably and very um, profoundly said no to us. Uh, and that's hard. And there's a whole lot of things that feed into that. Um, there are psychological impacts. There are economic impacts, political impacts. Uh, as an individual, I've had to wrestle with what that means, and uh, and I, I I think it's 
it's troubling that we so easily can do that. Um, we also know that there is a gap between the way Aboriginal people experience Australia and the way others do. And as Aboriginal people, in my case, you know, a writer and a journalist, how do we speak to a people who don't hear what we say? And that's on us as well to try to improve that measure of communication. It says to me that we also have to be mindful, mindful that we respond to this with a fundamental love and compassion rather than a, a hatred. And hurt, and I've expressed words of hurt, because it does hurt. Um, anguish, because it is anguished, but not hate, not hatred. In my case, not resentment, not grievance, but truth and the sacred truth of the country. So I think there is work for us all to do. And our people don't have a lot of time on our hands to do this work because we lose people every day. So I think it's revealed a lot about our country and it's set out the enormous challenges we still face. And it's a stark reminder that we all of the effort and goodwill, faith and love and hope, that words can often fail because we don't hear them, because politics and media have stripped words of their weight and we need to bring weight back to our words to find a way to speak to people who can't hear us. Yeah, I think that's really important. I mean, steering away from that divisive language, that dysphemistic language and focusing yeah. more on words that carry weight, words that could have possibly informed the public a little bit better on why the... Yeah, I, I think you're right. Uh, and part of that reflects on us as Aboriginal people too. How do we find a way to speak through to that? So people hear. Uh, clearly there is a resistance to the language we've been using, and yet the language we've been using has been necessary language to talk about justice, talk about reckoning, to talk about accountability. They're important words. But when those words fail, what words do we use? And, and I'm, I'm giving that a lot of thought right now. How do we approach How do we open up new space to have these conversations? Um, I'm, I'm giving a lot of thought to that because I want to speak to the people who voted no. Some you can't reach. I accept that. But I think of what we can and we've got to work on that. And that's the responsibility of all of us, not just those who voted one way or the other, all of us. I think over the next couple of weeks, months, years, we will see the effects of the referendum, not only on Indigenous communities, but on everyone and yeah. seeing how we can move forward, what's yeah. the next steps and how we can find another way to yeah. create that multiplicity in our society. Well, it, it's, it's a challenge for journalists. You know, we're journalists. Yeah. And uh, journalism has, in my view, failed. And I think there are things we have to ask ourselves to. The idea of an anemic neutrality and this fake idea of balance and that we just give all sides or both sides or whatever that 
maven mean, I think we have to really examine. I just think that is inane to talk in that way. Um, I think what we need to think about is is justice, truth, um, evidence. The evidence is very clear. It's incontrovertible. We are the most impoverished and imprisoned people in the country. How much more evidence do you need? Um, the evidence of racism is very clear. It is before everybody in every study. The volume, the weight of complaint every year. In my own case, the personal experience of it. So let's let's put those things on the scales, and those things weigh heavily. So this idea of journalistic neutrality, giving both sides and letting all things speak, is just utter nonsense in the face of the historical weight of this, this, this moment. And we failed it. And so I think journalism has to really also put itself under the microscope and ask where it could have done better. That's a very good point, Stan. In the future, we will have to find a different way of reporting. And I think constructive journalism definitely <clears throat> helps in finding that nuanced approach, that solutions-based approach to journalism in general. Well, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> <laughs> that's why these conversations are important and we'll continue to have them. You know, I know it's the last one of, our, of this particular um, uh, series because we've brought you know, the reference being uh, voted on and, uh, you know, that's part of our history now. But it's important to keep these conversations going. We'll keep doing these conversations. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, my camp is trying to improve that level of public discourse. So um, there's a lot for us to do. Yes, there is. Yeah, and we will. We'll be back. So stay tuned, everybody. And Amanda will let you know when we're back, probably in the new year now. And uh, there'll be a lot of things to talk about next year as well, and not just in Australia, but but globally. So um, let's uh, you know, let's work on that. It's a it's a troubling world, and uh, there's a lot to talk about. And journalism has an important role to play in that. Thank you, Stan. Thank you. Talk soon. Thank you for joining Stan and I on this journey to and post Australia's 45th referendum. While it didn't prove to be transformative for Australia's First Nations people, we do hope to continue to discuss things constructively in the future. Please take the time to like and subscribe to our podcast wherever you're listening so you receive alerts of future episodes. I'm Amanda Robson and this is Constructive Conversations with Stan Grant.